As I've been reading Philippians chapter 1 and preparing for this series, my mind has always gone to the people of our church. Some of the statements that Paul makes are profound and thoughtful, and his relationship with his church in Philippi was deep and personal. And during this time, we find ourselves socially distant and, and missing one another. I wondered if you might enjoy seeing some people from Castle Oaks read these words that Paul wrote so long ago. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. I thank my God every time I remember you. And all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership with the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. I can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Ah, I just love that. Um, hearing words from the people in our church that, that Paul wrote long ago, it, it made me emotional. And, and this week when I was working on that and, and putting that together, it, it surprised me. I, I mean, I had some thoughts like, you know, Mark, he looks good, and Brian, he could use a haircut and things like that. But for the most part, as I'm watching this, especially as I watch Tammy Brown, for some of you, that's the first time you've seen Tammy since Stan passed away, um, watching these words echo through the centuries from Paul's relationship with this church in Philippi, and then seeing some people I haven't seen in five or six weeks, it was, uh, it's, it's emotional. And as I even listen to it again today, and, and we'll put it on Facebook later so that you can watch it over, it, these words, they hit close to home, because Paul's relationship with the church in Philippi, he writes this letter to the Philippians, uh, his feelings about them are, are my feelings. And my guess is, is they're your feelings too. You, you share those same feelings and those same emotions. He writes words like these, I thank my God every time I remember you. It, it's almost as if he's not even praying and he's just recalling somebody that he has met, maybe it was Lydia, some of these people you'll get to know through this series that make up the church there, and as, as they just come to mind, he just begins praying, and he's, he's thankful, he's got such gratitude, and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, and then he says this, um, and we, Tammy used these words in her, her video, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart such affection that he has for these people. 
And of course, gratitude is, is one of those feelings. But as we go through this, this strange and weird season, um, while we're socially distant and not spending time face to face, it's not just gratitude. It's not just joy. It's not just thankfulness. Maybe you felt a variety of things through all of this. Certainly sadness and grief, maybe even more intense than that are some of the things that you have felt, all kinds of emotions that you have experienced. I have too, and they've surprised me. I mean, they've shown up at times when I have least expected them. Maybe I'm uh, running an errand or picking up something we need at the grocery store or in the car or maybe at home, but I find myself then having this emotion sort of ransack me and catch me from behind, and I think, what is that? Where did that come from? And, and so I've pondered those emotions, things like sadness and, and anger and even gratitude and thankfulness. But the other day it hit me. I, I know these emotions. I, I've seen these on a list before. Maybe you have remembered this as well as you've gone through this. I've seen all of these emotions and maybe felt a few of them. Maybe there's one or two more that's yet to come. But I remember them from the stages of grief. Do you remember this from your maybe freshman psychology class or maybe if you took uh, some other classes, they showed up in uh, this reminder of really what is a classic work by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She, she wrote on death and dying, the, the classic work, and, and she was the first person to call these the stages of grief. And it, it hit me when I saw this list and then my good friend Polly Lott recommended a podcast I listened to. It put several things into context and perspective for me. When I saw this list, I thought, I, I get it, stages of grief, but, but no one that I know has passed away. I mean, many people have died, but nobody close and personal to me. Why am I experiencing emotions that are connected to the stages of grief? Kubler-Ross would say, for years and years after she wrote her seminal work on death and dying and even a follow-up work on grief and grieving that there were two huge myths about the stages of grief that she always had to say many things against she had to combat them she had to write that this is not the case the first myth is this that it's not just about death now there's reference to this in her book of course on death and dying but this is just where she happened to observe these emotions in people in such intense ways. In fact, she would say it over and over and over again, and counselors, therapists know this as well, that these stages that we're experiencing and that we're going through aren't just related to death or losing a loved one in this permanent way. It really has to do with any time there is a, a loss, any loss. We maybe go through these stages in small ways or maybe in larger ways. I bet you've experienced some loss over the last five or six or seven weeks. I wonder if you've stopped to consider what it is that you've lost. I wonder if you've named it. Now, now don't get me wrong. I'm not inviting you to a pity party. I'm not asking you just to look back and and feel sorrow again and again and again. This is important for each of us. I, I wonder if maybe those of us who are more positive thinking among us and our friends, if we have just sort of, you know, bucked up, put our head down and pushed on, even though we're going through 
an unprecedented experience as a culture, individually and collectively. I wonder if you have named your losses, if you have maybe made a list, an actual list of what you're giving up or what you have already given up. For some of you, the loss is the high school graduation, the college graduation. There are some in our body here that have lost their jobs. They're not just laid off, they've literally lost their jobs. For some of you, you've lost the means to take care of your family financially. Maybe you still have the same job, but your income has changed. What have you lost? Let me encourage you to sit down, pen and paper, tap it out on your phone, however you make lists, and chronicle the losses. Again, not so that you can feel pity or sorry for yourself or or not so that you can even go back to a place that you feel like you have overcome. But here's the reason Kubler-Ross would say, and, and those who study loss would say, that if you don't name it, then you're going to forever feel it. If you don't name it and describe it and put it on a list, if you don't call it for what it is, then one day it will catch you from behind and you'll have no idea what grief has overtaken you. So what have you lost? Friendships private time, alone time. Some of you are in your home with your whole family and you're used to extended hours where you can take care of things on your own, where you can nest and clean and organize all those kinds of things and you've lost all of that and you're wondering where the irritability is coming from. What have you lost? That's the first myth that it isn't just about death, it's about any loss. You ought to name it. And then she says this, and this is probably the most important thing, Kubler-Ross would say that these are not stages of grief per se. That's what they're named, that's what they're called, that's what they are in the textbooks. But she would forever be combating the notion that these are five easy paths to dealing with grief and loss. That first you experience denial and anger. These, These aren't even sequential. In fact, she would say that they aren't even really stages. All she did in her research was describe observations of her own as she watched people deal with significant loss. And so she would see somebody who is bargaining, somebody who's going through periods of denial. And of course, all of these show up at different times, but they're not sequential and they're multi-layered. And you don't experience one and then check it off the list. You go back and forth, up and down the list and In fact, it's quite random. It's multi-layered. But I bet through this time you have felt much of these. Maybe a moment when you thought, come on, this can't be that bad. It's, It's really not. Maybe early on in this, before the headlines and the tolls began to count, denial is easy because we would love to hang on to what was. And of course, all of us have gone through feelings of anger and I recently heard a story, incident store up in Denver. Somebody walked in without a mask. Of course, in the the population center of Denver, people are a little more conscious about social distancing and especially lately mask wearing. But this person walked into a produce section of a grocery store in downtown Denver and, and what ensued was nothing short of, well, a bunch of people in that produce section were dealing with anger to a significant degree. 
shouted down, shouting match. Some people took up for him. It's a scene that you can't even fathom taking place in our own city. Kindness so far from everybody's hearts and minds. So these are the experiences that you're going through. And this is my guess that any relational tension that you're feeling, either, either in your home or out in public or with people online or wherever you're engaging with people, any relational friction that you're going through, well, it's probably happening because you are in one of these stages of grief and somebody else is in another stage of grief at that given moment. Maybe you're in denial and somebody else is sad and the two of you just completely miss one another. And the result, of course, is... Well, when we miss each other just like that, love is completely off the table because love is this mutual understanding. This is what's occurring in our relational worlds right now, whether it's people we cross paths with in public, in stores, out on the roads, or people that we interact with in social media or all the Zoom meetings that you're in. It's because of the grief that we're experiencing Grief is a big deal. We ignore this to our peril. If we shove it or stuff it or ignore it, it always comes back in one way or another. Now, this matters not just because of the feelings that rose up in me while our friends are reading Philippians. The reason this matters more than anything else and why it's related to the text of Philippians is because when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, of course this is all at play. Because as we said, Paul is in a lockdown of his own. And we'll get into that and unpack it in the coming weeks. Today we're just going to scratch the surface just a little bit of Philippians. And you'll see exactly how powerful these words are that will help us as we deal with what we are experiencing right now in our culture with each other and even in the quietness of our own hearts. The text of Philippians could not be more applicable. And this is the beauty of God's word, that it's true then, it's true today, and it will be true tomorrow. And it will help us through all of this. Just in what you've heard so far today, let me remind you, here's what, here's what Paul writes in these verses. Philippians 1.9, and this is my prayer, Paul says. This is, this is what I'm praying for you, church. And this is true today, it was true then for Paul then, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more, very clearly, more and more. In fact, just heaping upon heaping, never stopping. It is always moving forward continually. And of course, this, this word that he uses twice in the Greek, it is implying that there is a, a very important component of this that is sooner rather than later. It's not just more down the road, it's more right now not the distant future. What would he abound? Love more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, Paul is indicating that love for me and you in our relationships with each other, it is a, a lifelong endeavor that it's something that we have to continually push toward and engage in Layer after layer after layer. You know, for us, love is, is 
very often this feeling that we have. It sort of comes from our gut, or maybe if we feel like it comes from what we would call our heart, this intellectual center that is really centered around our emotions. For us, love is a a feeling. But for Paul, for Paul and Jesus, love was something entirely different, completely different. And this is so important This is so key if you're going to make it through this time with your relationships not just intact, but thriving and maybe going deeper than they ever have before. I mean, the key to following Jesus and following him every day is wrapped up in two commandments, right? Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor, and Jesus would add, even your enemy, the way God loves you. And if you're going to do that, then what Paul prays is so key and so integral to how we treat one another. So what would it look like if your love abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight? Well, first, the word that is being used here in the Greek, this word love is the word that maybe you're familiar with, this word agape, agape love, which is our first clue that love is... For Paul and for Jesus and and really for all of Jewish and Judeo-Christian thinking really doesn't have very much to do with how we feel. In fact, here's a good working definition of agape love and it's based on this verse out of Philippians. Agape love is a, a tangible action can be seen or touched or felt even. A tangible action that flows from a benevolent goodwill meaning I I want for you what is best, not just what I want, not just what I think is better for other people. I want for you what is best, a benevolent goodwill toward others, but it is also strengthened by knowledge and wisdom. In other words, it's not ignorant love or just good-intentioned love. It's love that is strengthened by my ability to understand how somebody else feels what they're going through, what they need, what they are losing through this season. How I can show the love of Jesus in a tangible and practical way because I have a benevolent goodwill toward them. I want better for them. Now, just hit pause for just a moment and just imagine what our relationships would be like if this were true, if, if this is how we loved each other, if we understood love in this way, how, how rich, how meaningful, how transformative love really would be if we decided that our love needs to be really sort of buttressed or, or risen up, a foundation built on knowledge and goodwill if it were built on an expertise and an understanding, if you approach love that way, then you would see the love that you share with somebody in your family, maybe a a child that you're helping, you know, you're parenting along the way, or maybe your spouse, or maybe your parents, or your friends, or your neighbors. You would be constantly thinking, how can I know them better? What does it mean to love them well? Not well, I said it, you should feel it. I, I, you know, this is what I have to offer. You should take it for what it is. None of that would be in your mind at all. Your perspective would be, I need to be sure that my love is felt and experienced as something that is really benevolent and evidence of a goodwill towards somebody else. 
This is why books like the, the Love Languages or Understanding Our Strengths, all of these things come into play. We want our love to be filled with knowledge and depth of insight, wisdom, so that we can love each other in this way. And this could not be more important than during a time like this, when we have so many touch points with each other. And then with some people, it's so infrequent, the times that we do get to either connect on the phone or FaceTime or Zoom, we have just a, maybe a brief opportunity to express the love of Jesus to somebody else. But imagine if we did, if we viewed love not as a feeling, but as a, a skill, a skill that could forever be improved. I mean, what if you approached love the same way you approach any other thing in your life that you know the skill's here, but you want to take it to this level? I mean, you would practice, you would learn, you would take notes. You would approach it in such a way that, well, you couldn't help but get better at it over time. Who wouldn't want to be loved in that? Who would not want to be loved in that way? I can't imagine anybody that would shove it aside. Here's another way that Paul says it. Different letter, same idea. It's in Galatians. He says this, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what it means to, to show a tangible outpouring of love, not a feeling, decision, act of the will. This is how we love one another. The burden right now that we're bearing for each other as we go through these weeks is really the grief that we mentioned before. That's the burden, knowing and experiencing it and understanding that as we bear this burden, we are going to help one another through. In fact, we could even say that Galatians 6.2, and, and put it together with Philippians 1.9, it means this, that we are to bear, one, uh, bear witness to another's grief. This is what it means to love right now in this time. It, it means, look, I, I see you. I hear you. You don't have to agree with somebody's grief. You don't have to be in the same stage that they're in or expressing it in the very same way. You don't even have to understand it to bear witness. When you bear witness to another's grief, all you're doing is saying, I recognize it. I see it for what it is. And it is something that you're going through and dealing with. And maybe it's coming up and showing up in some weird, gnarly, you know, unlovingly way. But in relationship, we can receive it. And Paul says, if you do this, your love will abound more in knowledge and depth of insight. I mean, this is how this works. It means that we don't judge someone else's grief. It means we don't sit in evaluation of what somebody else is feeling through this time. We bear it. We bear witness to it, and we help them carry it. It means when they're experiencing anxiety, more than anything, what somebody needs to hear is, I see you, I see what you're dealing with, and I understand why this makes you fearful. It means we don't compare losses. It means we don't decide that the depth of our loss is larger than somebody else's, therefore they don't have the right to feel what they feel. 
It means we don't try to talk somebody out of what they're going through. We bear witness to somebody else's grief. Remember what Paul says. He says this, we bear one another burdens. And when we do this, we fulfill, don't miss the last half of the verse, we fulfill the entire, the whole law of Christ. This is what Jesus has called us to do, is to love in this way. Agape love. Agape love that has a tangible action connected to it. And it flows from a benevolent goodwill toward others and is strengthened by knowledge and wisdom. That's what agape is. It's agape love. That's what we're called to. And this is what Paul is praying would grow more in us, heaping upon heaping, sooner than later. More important today than it has ever been before. The early church had gatherings when they would get together in the first century, and they called these gatherings agape feasts or love feasts. These agape feasts, they were designed to bring people together. And now they didn't see each other as often. When they gathered for these agape feasts, and it's mentioned in Scripture, it's mentioned in Corinthians, it's mentioned in the book of Jude. You can see some little references to it throughout the New Testament. They would bring people together in harmony, but the, the heart behind it, and this is shown in all sorts of writings in antiquity, the heart behind it was so that people could come together, break bread, enjoy a meal for the purpose, listen close, for the purpose of forgiving past disputes and to build with each other a common love and in this experience together this this agape feast they would come together and show tangible action flowing from benevolent goodwill strengthened by knowledge and wisdom that can only be built in the context of a relationship and then they would almost always end their agape feast with a celebration of the eucharist the Lord's Supper, after conversation and rich laughter and offering of grace and forgiveness and mercy to each other, they would sit down and they would remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus because it is only through the sacrifice of Jesus that we can experience the deep forgiveness that's needed for us to offer that same grace to each other. It's, it's the agape feast. This is the picture of what it means. That is tangible love. I mean, there's a reason why agape is the word we use. Because of Jesus in his life, well, it is the cross that is the tangible action that brings us to the place to know that if God can love me, if God can look at me and my sin, my failure, my inability to even stay pure and and loving for a period of five minutes, for goodness sakes. If he can love me as I am, then he can surely give me the power and the ability to love other people in that exact same way. It's agape. This, this idea of agape love and the agape feast, really it's the very idea that embodies a parable uh, an old parable, a couple hundred years old, that was told by an obscure rabbi from 
from Lithuania. It's very powerful. And his name was Rabbi Haim, and he tells the parable of the long spoons. It's a beautiful story. There was a man who wanted to understand the difference between heaven and hell. And so this man was invited into a banquet room. And as he came into the door, he came into the banquet room, he saw that on the table before him and the crowd that was in the room, and he saw that the table was filled with a spread of incredible, delicious, delectable, tasty desserts and food and main courses, and it was all there for everyone's taking. And as he looked around, he noticed that everyone in the room that was present for this incredible feast was gaunt and discouraged. And he looked at the table, and the only utensils that were available for this feast were long spoons. I mean, they weren't just long spoons. I mean, these were long spoons, like five, six feet. And so everyone's walking around and seeing this food that is available to eat, but the length of these spoons prevents them from actually being able to partake of the food. They can't even get it into their mouth, and they're just discouraged and forlorn and hungry, very, very hungry. On the other side of this room was another door, and he began to walk through this door into a different room, realizing that he had been in hell. Now he engages in a new experience, and he walks in, and there is the very same table, and it's filled with incredible amounts of delicious and delectable food i mean main courses that just the smell was so tempting and desirous and he of course he's hungry and he looks around and the room is filled with people and the people in this room they have smiles they have uh, warm engaging loving glances with each other they're engaged in conversations they're paying attention to one another because they have picked up the long spoons and have decided to feed each other the food that's available. This is an agape feast. This is the parable that teaches us that during this time when we find ourselves hungry for human interaction, hungry for the grace that is needed, hungry for mercy that could cover a multitude of sins and and the ways that we find ourselves talking to one another or treating one another, that we're all experiencing an immeasurable amount of loss. And through this grief, what we need from each other is to bear witness, bear witness to the grief, to bear one another burdens. And as we bear those burdens, that we would live out what Paul says, that that our prayer His prayer is that our love would would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, just imagine, what what if we viewed this love that Paul describes, this agape love, as a a skill to be developed? It's not something we pass or fail. It's something we improve on every day, that's all. What if it's not an emotion to be felt? What if what Paul describes is is a commitment to learn the nuances of somebody else and the way they experience grace and mercy and for us to offer it over and over again? What if we decided 
as we're walking through the aisles at King Supers, that we won't judge somebody else's glance, that we won't judge somebody else's grief, that we won't even judge somebody else's anger in the parking lot. What if we decided to love in this way? This kind of love has never been more needed than right now. And the people, like me and you, who have been loved into a relationship with Jesus, we have it to give. May we not be stingy with this love. May we give it in such a way that people can clearly tell that God is obviously at work. This week, would you bear witness? Would you carry somebody else's burden? Would you decide that you will pick up a long spoon and feed somebody something delicious that they're craving? So, Lord, we ask in this moment that you would give us the courage and the insight and the wisdom to love in this way, this agape love. We want it to flow from us. And so, Lord, we recognize that we cannot give that which we do not have. And so I pray that everyone listening right now would be overwhelmed, absolutely overwhelmed with the depth and the height and the width of your love, that they would know that, that your love for them bestows on them the righteousness of Jesus, that you accept them as they are, and that they are not estranged from you any longer. And Lord, we pray that as we lean into that love, that we would give it freely to the people around us. Lord, help us to give grace not just to those we encounter, but to ourselves, knowing that the grief that we're experiencing is profound and the losses are deep and significant. So Lord, we don't name those losses this week so that we can stay stuck there. We name them so that we will not be in bondage to them. And as we do so, Lord, may you allow us to experience the freedom. Lord, this is our hope and this is our prayer.